0: Good morning. How are y'all? You all right? (laughs) All right, good deal. Uh, It is good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, Man, God gave us a little bit of a graceful gift in the weather the past two days, right? It was so hot earlier this week, I literally opened up my car door and the heat like hurt my eyes. Not exaggerating, all right? And so a little bit of grace here. Uh, Praise the Lord also for humans with the ability to make godly things like AC, amen? Amen. You know, I get the loudest amens when I say things that are only half theologically accurate, so we'll keep working on that. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Genesis 32 uh, is where we're gonna be camped out the whole day today, we're not moving from there. So uh, Genesis chapter 32, if you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you, Uh, please take and keep that. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to read it during the week. Uh, You can also follow along on your smartphones if you have the YouVersion app underneath the events section, uh, type in the well Austin, you can follow along that way. Uh, There are notes, scriptures, all that stuff. If you do not have the Uversion app or don't know what that is, you can take this link Put it right into your browser, and uh, that will also pull up everything for you. So you can follow along that way. We say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the word. Uh, We know that it is the word of God that speaks to us, not any men of God. Um, And so we want you to be wrestling even with the word as we look at Jacob wrestling this morning. So uh, this is a super interesting encounter in Jacob's life. If you've uh, been with us at all over the past few weeks, you've seen Jacob really in some ways uh, on this journey of faith, right? Like he's trying to figure out who is the Lord and and what is God doing? And for a lot of Jacob's life, he was actually essentially ignorant to God and to who God was and and how God was moving in his life. And so really, even though God chose him, though God had plans for him, uh, it was really years of walking in disobedience with Jacob. He was uh, more of a swindler than he was a godly man by any ways. However, Last week, we saw that God purposefully put Jacob through these 20 years of trial, and what he was doing was slowly but surely kind of grinding away the hardness of Jacob's heart so that he can come to faith in God. And so God used this trial to actually draw Jacob into intimacy with himself, into faith in a lot of ways. And so today, we're going to be looking at a super interesting encounter in Jacob's life. If you've uh, uh, really been able to to watch Jacob here, we get the privilege. Privilege of seeing not just his conversion last week, but now we get the privilege of seeing some of his sanctification or his uh, renewing in the faith. How God is making him to be more like Himself. Now, warning, all right, Jacob is not the Apostle Paul. Okay, So we're still going to see some shortcomings, we're still going to see some failures, we're going to see an immature faith, but we know that at this time, Jacob has really only professed faith in God for about two to three months now. So he's a brand new believer, really kind of wrestling with who is God, who is Yahweh. And so really quick recap, all right? The past 20 years, Jacob was in a uh, labor camp, essentially under Laban, and then he fled Laban. Laban went out to kill him, but God protected Jacob. And now he is going back to the promised land where he is about to meet his brother Esau, who also wants to kill him. And so Jacob is in the middle of literally a rock in a hard place, right? Like there are two people that wanted to kill him. now, if you remember, uh, we haven't seen Esau now for over 20 years on the scene, but last time we saw Esau, Esau wanted to murder uh, his brother. Now, a lot of people have siblings, and they feel like they want to murder them, but very few people have plans on how to do that. Esau had a plan of how he was going to murder Jacob. If you do have a plan, then you should talk to one of the elders, n- not me, another elder, okay? But figure that out. So, uh, here comes Jacob, he's about to reconnect with Esau again, and that's where we we pick up the story in this uh, a great drama really of jacob's faith so genesis chapter 32 we're going to pick it up here in verse 3 it says and jacob sent messengers before him to esau his brother in the land of seir the country of edom instructing them thus you shall say to my lord esau thus says your servant jacob I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Uh oh. Right? Now, four hundred men was like a, a, a squadron, a, a small army almost, and so Jacob gathers all of these men with him. The messengers return and essentially saying he's coming to slaughter you, your family, and everything that you love, and he's going to ride off on your camels, laughing in the process. Right? Like that's what Jacob sincerely would have heard within this, and so the author honestly does a really great job of immediately creating some dramatic tension for us because. We know if you're looking at the Jacob narrative that he now holds the promise of God. Remember, all throughout Genesis, there was this promise seed that was gonna come that was gonna deliver us from all of the things that are wrong in this world. And Jacob now is carrying forth this promise, but all of a sudden Esau is coming out with him with 400 men. And Jacob, granted, has 12 sons, but they're all really young. In fact, he only has 11 at this point. And so it's really just Jacob, a bunch of wives, right? And all these sons. And all of a sudden, Esau's coming out to really slaughter this man is what it looks like. Keep reading. Verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob is afraid, he's distressed, and then he begins to kind of act strategically here. He's essentially trying to cut his losses. And so, hey, here are a a, a way that I may be able to make it out, and if not me, at least some of my sons will be able to make it out. Let's divide these camps so that he can't attack both of them at the same time. He knows he can't fight. And so he's using strategy in some ways to try to uh, bring forth a a way for some sort of redemption, of of salvation, that somebody's life would be saved. Now what happens next is really important, verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude." So several things about this. Firstly, you'll know that Jacob was anxious, and then he began to strategize, and then he prayed to God. He was anxious, strategized, and then prayed to God, which is actually probably the reverse of what should have happened. Right. In fact, uh, we see other positive examples in Genesis like Abraham or Abraham's servant or even Noah where they get anxious, they're kind of confused about what God is doing and so then they go and they pray to God and then they begin to strategize and they act often based on what God already answered in their prayer life. Jacob though is not the most mature believer in this act of redemption like we just said. So he's not thinking along those lines and so I think we can immediately, honestly, add a really small application into our lives, right? Like, like how often when anxiety comes up, do we go before the Lord and seek him in prayer versus do we begin to act out on these anxieties and try to figure out what we should do? How do we cut our losses? God, what are you doing here? We begin to plan and shift and mold before even seeking the God of the whole universe who holds this world in his hand and is the, the wise being who can give knowledge to those who ask, James tells us. I think so often we are like Jacob, right? I know I am, where I begin to get all anxious and all caught up on my emotions and I can't see clearly. So I'm like, let me work a little bit harder. Let me stay a little bit later tonight. Let me do these things. And then when that's not really working, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. God listens to me when I pray. Let me pray. All right? And I think that we tend to do that a lot of times, too. We tend to act before we pray. And so Jacob is allowing his fears to rule rather than God to rule. And we are frequently in danger of doing the exact same thing. This fear, this anxiousness, this anxiety, this distress really become a flood in our lives. And in the flood of anxiety, as we are drowning and and gasping for breath, that's when we finally call out to God, forgetting that he's the one that can still the winds and the waves and the sea. And so we drown in our anxiety a lot of times rather than calling out to the God who can handle them, who said, cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you, 1 Peter says. So we have to learn to seek God first. However, okay, look, look at our boy Jacob, right? Like, like this is a man who has been completely ignorant of God's uh, even very presence in his life. And then all of a sudden here he is, he's, he is seeking God. Right? Now it might be in the right order, but 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 my man's a seeking the Lord. Right? Like this is a good thing, okay? And so in fact, in God's goodness, he's actually using what is an illegitimate fear in Jacob's life to draw him into intimacy with himself. Spoiler alert, Esau doesn't kill him, okay? And so this is an illegitimate fear. Esau is actually coming to bless Jacob, but Jacob doesn't know that. And so he's fearing, he's anxious. And in fact, this is actually the first recorded prayer in the Bible. Now, other people prayed, it says, and blank prayed, but you don't see what they prayed. This is the first recorded prayer, and it's actually the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. And so Jacob is sincere here. His his need is creating this fervent prayer. And once again, I think that God often does this to us. He won't allow us to see the end necessarily because he wants to, to, uh, us to learn to, to draw toward him, to seek him out, to understand who he is. And so even though it may even be a false fear, which most of our anxieties usually are, he'll almost allow us to rest and to sit in that because to learn to draw near to him is far more valuable than the freedom from the anxiety that we may be feeling for the moment. You tracking with this? And so God literally does this. I think about it in my daughter's life, right? Like when my daughters are learning to walk, I don't always hold their hands, which means they're learning to walk and then oh, they fall, right? Now, I don't run and pick them up. I I try to help them learn. And so the falling, even though it may be slightly and momentarily painful, is better for them because I see the end. Because if I'm walking them into their second grade class holding them by the hand, they are not fully formed adults, right? And their lives will be hindered. God knows that you seeking him is where you find your most joy. And so he'll allow you to even stumble and fall a little bit because he knows the end is better. And so he doesn't come at Jacob and say, no, 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 brother. Uh, uh, Esau's actually coming to bless you. Jacob's like, oh, good, okay, great. Right, no, no, no. He actually lets him wrestle within this because God is trying to draw him to himself. And so even though Jacob is not in the right order, he is seeking God. God's using this fear to humble this man and create dependence on him, which in the end ends up being Jacob's freedom and blessing. In fact, in verse 12, we actually see Jacob's first uh, unselfish act. He remembers not his own life, but he remembers the promise of God and beseeches God upon this promise, which is the blessing of many. Instead of looking at himself, he looks at others. The first time we see this in Jacob's life, Jacob is truly a changed man. God is doing something in his heart. My daughter just saw me and waved at me. Hey, baby. Okay, so let's keep going. I know I was distracting, sorry. I was distracted, so distract y'all too. Here we go, let's keep going. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night, And from what uh, he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 uh, ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And and, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. And likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face, perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. That same night, he arose and took his two wives and his two female servants and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jebuk. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone." So after prayer, Jacob thinks that he's going to pacify Esau with giving this man huge amounts of gifts. Okay, this is like loads and loads, hundreds of thousands of dollars is what this would have translated into. It's kind of like uh, when you were in school and you would like get a referral or suspended or get like a bad grade or something, you would come home and you would try to clean the house in hopes to pacify your mom or your dad's (laughs) wrath, right? Some of y'all were perfect children, I know. But when I got suspended from school, right, I would go home, and it was really a fruitless effort because I would still get in trouble. So I really wasted my time cleaning, but I hoped that that would do something, right? Maybe ease the punishment a little bit. It's worth a shot. And this is what Jacob is thinking. It's worth a shot. If he kills me, he's gonna take everything I own anyway. So I might as well give this man as much as I can to try to pacify his wrath. One of the things that the text makes clear, though, is the condition of Jacob's heart. He's terrified here. Why is he so terrified? In reality, it's really his past sin and his consciousness that are messing with him. You know, in Christ, we have redemption and freedom of sin, but that doesn't mean that our past mistakes don't still bear for some consequences. Jacob knows that he deceived his brother over and over and over again and really actually deserves death from his brother's hand. And so all of this past fear and his guilty conscience is stirring up in him in such a way where he's literally terrifying himself. He knows he's supposed to be killed. You actually see this in this section. Look at this chart really quickly. You see here that in in chapter 32, verse 13, it says he stayed there that night. Everything's happening at night. In fact, in verse 13a, he tried to sleep, but he couldn't. So he sent the animals ahead of him. And then in 21b, he tried to sleep again, but he couldn't. And so then he sent uh, his family uh, uh, separated, and then he was left alone. He's feeling the weight of his past mistakes against Esau, and so he can't sleep. He's an insomniac, right? His anxiety is is worrying him so much. Now, when we remember, the author of Genesis always tells us the time of the day, not just as an indicator of what time it is, but also of an indicator of the person's heart. We see that over and over and over again in Genesis. So Jacob is feeling dark, he's feeling weighty, he's feeling scared, all things, he can't sleep, he can't rest. This is where our brother Jacob is. And then this happens, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So Jacob called the name of the place, Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Jacob is scared, and then some dude walks up to him and starts fighting him. <laughs> <laughs> what? Right? Right? God has a WWE match with this man Jacob here, okay? So I don't know if you're like visual like me, but remember this is happening all at night, right? So it's probably like two in the morning when this starts and they're sitting there and they're wrestling and it says until daybreak. And so for five hours, they're sitting here slamming each other or pushing or whatever is happening. Like, this is an awkward story, is it not? Like, this is a strange story that we see in the Bible. In fact, this is actually one of the reasons why you can believe that the Bible is true. Because if there was a human author here, I'd have been like, that's ah, just too weird, man. We're not putting that in there, <laughs> right? But the Holy Spirit tells us, no, 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 leaving in here is something that is trying to show us. So let's break the story down a little bit, okay? First of all, you notice in verse 24, the man, he's uh, veiled. Jacob does not know who this man is. The Lord doesn't immediately reveal who he is. We see later, as Jacob does as well, that it's actually God or probably Jesus incarnate that's wrestling here with Jacob. But something beautiful is happening behind this veiled identity. See, all around the story, there are all these other characters and all this other movement that's happening. In fact, look at this first shot right here of the chart. So in the story, between this story, before in chapter 32, what we just read, Jacob is mentioned nine times, God three, Esau family, goods are mentioned 24 times. In the the story after in verse 33, so the one immediately following this context, here we go again, all these things are being mentioned. However, look at this story right here. In the next slide we see, all of a sudden, Everything disappears and it's just Jacob and God and they're there by themselves and all of a sudden in the still of the night, God has stripped away everything that Jacob knows, everything that he loves, everything that he has historically found dependence on and it's just him and the Lord. Now this can be a beautiful thing when it's just you and God or this can be a terrifying thing when it's just you and God. Either way, we have him here by himself. I think once again, to relate it to our lives, oftentimes I think the Lord will remove us from everything we know and love because he's trying to draw us out into the wilderness to speak something to our hearts. Because in our busyness and and in our really depravity, we we surround ourselves with all this noise, all this movement, all these things, our family, our goods, and on and on and on it goes. And God will sometimes just gently and beautifully remove us so that he can speak to us. In verse 25, we see God seemingly could not prevail against Jacob, which for the longest time I would read the story and be like, what? (laughs) What? Right? Like, God can't win against Jacob. However, in the very next part, he literally touches Jacob's hip and utterly devastates his life, all right? And so it's clear that God was actually in control. This wasn't really a fight, all right? Like, like, when I wrestle with my four-year-old daughter, she's actually pretty strong, right, for, for her age. But we're playing around, and she's like, I'm strong, Daddy. And then I have to just, like, ruin her life real quick to remind her. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, Right. But I could do that, right? <laughs> like, and so God here shows, no, 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 he's in control, right? So, so what's happening here then? What is happening here? Well, God is setting up this unbelievably beautiful picture for us and for Jacob here. See, all of Jacob's life, he's been wrestling with God. He's wrestling with him. He's wrestling with him. God has given this man visions and dreams, God has given this man possessions and gifts. God has given this man testing and trials, warning and promises. God has given this man everything. And still, Jacob is wrestling with God and not really believing in many ways in the goodness of God. Jacob was hard-hearted. He was not submitting to God or submitting to God's will. But remember what we kept saying. God's not gonna leave Jacob alone. He's gonna keep walking with him. He's gonna keep trying to draw Jacob to himself because God could have just said, all right, fine, buddy. Next guy, right? And I think that's what a lot of us would have done in our impatience. But God is patient with this man, longing for him to, to come to repentance and he keeps wrestling with him. God is the one that's also in many ways trying to wrestle with Jacob, showing him, I am good, you can trust me. But there seems to be this war going on. God keeps working, he keeps giving, he keeps being present to the point of humbling himself into a draw with our brother Jacob to the point of coming down to earth and literally humbling himself in such a way that it seems as if momentarily, Jacob has actually prevailed against this God-man incarnate. God is using all these trials in his life, he's using all this humbling in his life to try to draw Jacob to himself, and God does finally completely humble this man He, to some extent, ruins him, right? But all of a sudden within this, you see Jacob beginning to be fully alive and fully free which is what we saw in the Abraham narrative. And it's what we see in the Noah narrative. And it's what we see all throughout scripture, God trying to make us alive, to have life and life abundantly. And he finally does this with Jacob in many ways. There's a dual battle that's happening here. If we're uh, looking at the context of this story, there's one of a physical side that he has with Esau. And there's one of a spiritual side that he has with the Lord. And both of them actually parallel each other in these beautiful ways. Jacob is now removed from all of his natural strength. His, his hip sock has been removed. He cannot no longer fight. He's about to go into war, he thinks, with his brother Esau. How will he for real live now? Like at least before he could have ran. Now he can't even move, right? Uh, everything is shriveled up inside of him, and it's just him and God. He can no longer lean on his deception he can no longer lean on his manipulating words. He can no longer lean on his possessions. Those are all across the river now by his own doing, and it's just him by himself, and he's facing Esau physically with nothing around him, but he's facing God spiritually with nothing around him either. If, uh, 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 if, if, if we were Jacob in this, we would be probably even more humbled, afraid, distressed. What is happening? All right? Uh, I was meeting with Scott Graham this week, who's a PT, and we were talking about this story a little bit. And the Hebrew word here is uh, that the hip was completely removed from the joint. It was completely severed. So this is his uh, acetabellum. Yeah, look at that. I'm a doctor, y'all. Just kidding. <laughs> all right? And so Scott informed me, right? He knows all this and he actually is a doctor. So he informed me that you literally cannot stand when this happens. There's two sorts of removes that can happen, but the Hebrew word is very particular that it got completely removed. And so there's actually no way to put an ounce of weight onto uh, 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 yourself at that time. And so he is sitting here, that means on the floor because he can't stand, he can't even be on his knees. So he's laying here on the floor because God has touched his hip, it's completely out of place. Now he's clinging to God and God is turning to leave, it says, and here goes Jacob clinging to God and he's either clinging to the train of his robe or his foot or his heel. Anybody remember what Jacob's name means? Heel grabber. Heel grabber, good job, -hmm. all right? A plus, <laughs> All right. His name is Heel Grabber. All of a sudden, Jacob, remember, he comes out of his mother's womb, and he's holding on to Esau's heel, trying to maneuver a blessing from Esau, it looks like, even from the, the womb. Now, here he is with the Lord again, and he's holding on to the Lord's heel as God's trying to leave. And, and God turns to him, this completely broken and shattered man, and he looks at him and says, what is your name? And Jacob has to respond, heel grabber, as he's holding on to the Lord's heel. And at this moment, all of Jacob's past mistakes and his failures and his shortcomings are going to come flooding into Jacob's head as it should ours. All of a sudden, he realizes, what have I done? I have nothing, right? here goes Jacob, and at that moment, all of a sudden, all of this man's manipulation, all of his reputation, him fleeing Jacob into the hands of his brothers, he's completely humbled by the Lord, and then God looks at him and says, that's not your name, your name is Israel. And God reorients this man's name, and he gives him a new name. You will no longer be called heel grabber, somebody who cheats, somebody who manipulates. To put it more frankly in our context, you will no longer be called a sinner. You are now mine. The Lord says and he reorients this man's identity your name is Israel which is a actually beautiful name in and of itself even for this story because the name actually has a, a dual meaning in some sense it's a a, a, a thing that cu- carries a double significance it's a sort of reminder of who you are but also a prophecy about the future it handles your past and your presence because Israel literally means to fight or to struggle And so, in one way, it could say, you fight with God. That's what Israel could mean. In another way, it could mean God fights for you. You catch that? You fight with God, but God doesn't fight with you. He fights for you, is what that would mean. So it's actually God who is not fighting against him, but God is actually fighting for him all of Jacob's life. And all of a sudden, what should flash in Jacob's mind is his whole life, he's been wrestling with God, and he's been fighting God. He's been trying to find a way to manipulate this blessing, and the whole time, God was fighting for him. Jacob thought he was pushing back, but no, it was God who was trying to pull him in. I think a lot of us can realize that and we can uh, 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 associate ourselves with that. Because I think a lot of times we try to overpower God or manipulate God to get the blessing that we want, just as Jacob was doing. But Jacob here realized you don't prevail against God by overpowering him, you prevail by submission and prayer. Jacob prevailed against the Lord, it says. How? By his submission, he's on his face, and by prayer. Bless me, Jacob says, right? Then you realize, wait a minute. (laughs) It's been God who's been fighting for me this whole time. This whole time. See, God could have decimated Jacob at that moment. We even show this power, right? He should have decimated Jacob at that moment. But instead of drawing up all of Jacob's past mistakes, he reminds him, you are a needy man, you are a heel grabber, but there is freedom to be found if you believe in me. This is the message of the Lord to Jacob, and we receive this by prayer and submission. When you realize this, he gives you a new identity, a new name. The old is gone. The new has come, and this is what we see in Jacob's life. This blessing that God gives him is far greater than material blessing. He gives him an eternal blessing, eternal significance, real life, real power, real purpose. Uh, Bruce Walkie, a professor at RTS, says this. God in humility makes himself available to humanity. Jacob is able to wrestle the man to a draw. Jacob's remarkable encounter reminds saints they too may encounter God in ambiguity. He didn't at first realize it was God, and even in apparent hostility, and in such humility that he restrains himself from dominating their lives. When they stop wrestling with God and start clinging to God, They discover that he has been there for their good to bless them. Jacob sees the face of God, and he lives. This is a remarkable story. Let's read the last two verses to finish up. Verse 31. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. Jacob is left with this continual reminder of this encounter, this changed man in some ways. Abraham Kuravilla says this, as a result of the miraculous touch of the divine, Jacob would limp forever, a testimony of his lack of self-sufficiency and to the absolute sufficiency of Yahweh who would fight for him. No more would he need to fight. No more would he be able to fight. Henceforth, God was fighting for him. Even notice what the text says here. It says the sun rises. He's, he's finally a new man. The, the sun is shining. But notice what the text says, though. It says that the sun shines on him. The sun rises on Jacob. It's like all of creation is now making sense to him. It's like the sun was made just for him and it's shining upon him because his heart has become alive and he realizes God is God and he has blessed me and I need to submit to him. He becomes alive. No longer dark is it in his heart. He still has to face Esau, by the way. But all of a sudden, he's a new man, not really caring about that in some ways. Everything seems to make sense. Even notice the transformation of this. In Genesis chapter 28 is where we first see Jacob in wrestling with God. But here, we see him uh, with God again. The first one was the story of the latter. Notice what Jacob is focused on in Genesis chapter 28. The place, this place, the house of, my father's house, Bethel, which means uh, place of God or, or the place where God comes. In Genesis 22, though, I have seen God, and he called the place Peniel, which means the face of God. At first, he's focused on the gifts, the place, the place, the place. Now he's focused on the giver, God himself. I have seen the face of God, and I live. Even how he's naming things have changed. God is reorienting this whole man's life. He's getting it. Jacob is coming alive. He's realized the key to life is following God and submission to him. So, friends, we have a really easy application here, right? A really easy application. If we do not know the Lord, then we are like Jacob, I think, wrestling in the middle of the night. We're wrestling with God. We're fighting. We're thinking we're pushing back against God, not realizing that it is God that is actually fighting for us. God wants you, friends, to know him. He's not fighting against you. He's not in this to ruin your life or to to put these restrictions on you that will actually kill you. He wants to make you free, alive, whole, new. He wants to give you eternal life and life abundantly even right now. God wants you to know him. And so we can often think we're fighting against God or, or God's not for me, God's against me. There could be nothing further from the truth. God is for you, friends and he longs for you to enter into a relationship with him, that you would be changed and begin to follow him. Instead of trying to do things your own way, you give yourselves in submission to the king and realize that that's what you were created for all along. If we don't know Jesus, this is the call of this text, that even right now, we can surrender our lives to Christ. Say, Jesus, my life is yours. Come, live in my heart. Help me to know you and our lives will utterly change like Jacob's did, and we'll realize that God is a God that loves us and that is for us. If we are Christians, if we have made Jesus the king of our heart, the the Lord of who we are, then where are you not surrendering yourself to God? It's a really easy question, right? Jacob was a believer in this text. He just wasn't really surrendering to God. And I know that we do this all the time. In fact, we know hindsight is 20-20. Oftentimes, God breaks us down and we're like, why, oh Lord, why? Right, And then all of a sudden, three years later, we look back at that time and we go, thank the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord that he was trying to make me submit to him, surrender to him, because now I am alive. This idol that I was clinging on to is no longer holding me, that I am now who I have been created to be. This is what God is calling us to. And so where are you not surrendering to God? You think that he's fighting against you. He's fighting for you, friends. Don't fight against him. We are like Israel, are we not? We fight against God, fight against God, not realizing the whole time it is he that is fighting for us. And blessings are found in him when we surrender to him. Family, stop fighting. Stop fighting. God is good and worthy to be trusted. We can trust him. And do you know why we know that we can trust him? Think about this story in the context of the greater story, the grand narrative of the Bible. Do you see the beauty that's found in this text? It is unbelievable. Here's how we know that we can trust God. See, Jacob knew because he was physically fighting with God. God spoke to him. He was, he was there. He could see it, right? But friends, think about the story in light of the gospel. 2,000 years after this incident, another man came down to earth. And he showed up suddenly where nobody was expecting in the middle of the night. And this man was born in a manger so much so that nobody would have thought upon first looking that this man was actually God himself. This man veiled to come down and he wrestled with man his whole life, the Pharisees and the disciples and his own family. And they wrestled him even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for a moment, it looked like humanity prevailed against God. And Jesus would humble himself in such a way to the cross only to touch, right, this one miraculous thing and he burst out the grave because the grave could not hold him. We see this is actually the power of God and all of a sudden we look to Jesus and we realize if we look to him, Colossians tells us he is the exact imprint of God, the very nature of God. We look at Jesus and we can say, I have seen the face of God and I live, My life comes alive. I am no longer dead. I am new. Jesus does something in me. This story is nothing more than a foreshadow of the greater story that is to come that is the gospel. And we know we can trust God because if he's willing to humble himself to a cross that you may know him, how is he not for you? How is he not fighting with you? How does he not love you? Friends, submit to this King, Jesus. He is good, he is worthy learn to cling to him in the dirt cling to him friends i love you guys let's pray jesus i thank you for the gospel christ that you love us so much that you would be willing to do what it takes God, that you would even in some ways be the greater Jacob whose hip was momentarily removed, that your body would be broken, that we may know who you are, Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you would reveal to us more and more and more your glory. Help us to trust you. God, even right now, for those of us that are wrestling with you in our heads right now, would you help us to submit to you, Holy Spirit? Would you draw up things that you're trying to show us? Just submit these to me. And would you allow us to do that? God, I pray boldly that you would break our hips where necessary and then remind us of that our whole lives, that we may walk in the newness of who you are. We thank you, Jesus. You are a gracious and good God. Man, bless us, Jesus. (laughs) We cling to you. Bless us with your presence, God. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.